0: Welcome to episode number 28 of the Who Am I podcast. This is Brian Deal with the Southside Church of Christ. We are excited to talk with you today about our identity as Christians. As always, I have here with me the impressive Jackson Wells. Dog. I don't know what that means. It mean, means good day in Dutch. Okay, all right. Oh, and okay, now I know why I can use that. Okay, so... So we also have with us today our first ever repeat guest in Mr. Paul Meredith. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here. Wow, I feel honored. I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and and uh, we knew you were going to be in town and helping us out with our summer series, so we thought let's let's get him on another podcast episode. So let's go ahead and get this podcast episode going. Okay, so like we always like to do, we want to throw some random questions at our guest. And I know Paul is very excited about this. Mm. <laughs> so question number one, Paul, will the next car you buy be an electric car?
1: Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Well, Amanda and I do have an ongoing debate. My wife, Amanda, <laughs> she thinks not. I mean, I, we do have a member that has a Tesla, right? and he let me drive it around the block. Sure, about sure. a week or two ago. Okay. I have pictures if you want to see. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody listening here, look at this picture. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I got to say, it was a lot of fun. Okay. It was a lot of fun right. to drive the Tesla. Right. So I I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not opposed to it. Okay. Um, I realize there's debate that swirls about whether or not it is better for the it's environment not or not. see at all, yeah. Yeah. And, right. the, and the mileage limit, if your battery runs out, You know, the fear of getting stranded. Sure, sure. Well, like for my commute, so I live in Texas, and, you know, I have a pretty routine commute. I mean, you drive a lot in Texas, so I drive, you know, 16, 17 miles from my house to the church building. Okay. And that would be great to drive an electric car and then back and scoot around town and go to the hospital and not have to go to gas stations and fund all of those Saudi terrorists. So I'm good with (laughs) that.
2: What would be your excuse to go to Bucky's after that?
0: They but, have Bucky's has uh, EV, EV chargers. They yeah. do. They installed oh, a whole God. ring of Tesla EV chargers yeah. at Bucky's.
2: So I would I would still go to Bucky's. <laughs> <even. laughs> My question is this: Who would win in a fighting match, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? Wow,
1: that's a that's a tough one. I mean, Lincoln, I guess, was a pretty lanky guy. Had
2: what? height. Let, the, let me give you a stat. Oh, of course. Abe yeah. Lincoln, six, four, 185. Yeah. Um, George Washington, 6'2". And peak weight, they estimate about 2'10". Okay. So he, he's got a little bit more mass to him. Gotcha.
1: Okay. I mean, is this like boxing or MMA? <laughs> fight, or fighting. A, Street fighting fight. a, a string fight. Yeah. Well, I mean, Washington could go in with nothing to lose because he doesn't have any teeth to get knocked out, right? So, I mean, he might go at it more boldly.
2: There, right. I, I, I think about this question pretty frequently and... Why I don't know. <laughs> there are stories about Abraham Lincoln being a boxer, yeah. and being somebody that like fought people yeah. to get clout when he was younger. I just feel like George Washington. Something about him. I feel like you you would not want to mess with George.
1: I don't know. Now that I think about it, yeah. that,
2: there are, you know, tones
1: of of pretty serious. Aggression in the Gettysburg Address. I mean,
2: so yeah. I think you know Lincoln might have had it in him. Well, too. and I, I was I was doing research on this today. Abraham Lincoln was a vampire slayer, so like he's got. Hey, I think there's a movie about that. <laughs> and like okay, that I didn't think of that. Yeah. I don't know if that would come into <laughs> effect. I don't, I, George Washington wasn't a vampire to my knowledge. So.
1: <laughs> I, I do enjoy history, but I there's a bit of a vacant spot there in my historical awareness about that particular <laughs> aspect of his presidency. <laughs> All right.
0: What <laughs> okay, so, is to say? Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> so, okay, question number three. Uh, you have a son-in-law now yep. for uh, a couple years, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. Three years. Yeah, three years. Okay. All right. Um, so how long did it take for you to like him enough to consider him good enough for your daughter?
1: Oh, we love (laughs) Braden. Well, here's the thing when they're like high school sweethearts. So we remember the time when Braden came up to us, we were over at a church activity and he said, can I step outside and speak to y'all for a minute? And so we, y'all, so you and me and Amanda, we stepped out and he asked permission to ask Emma out on a date. He asked us first if he could ask our daughters on a date, date. just for a date for their friend. And so we're like, uh, yeah, we're, and we're like, we like this guy. He's good with us. So Brayden has always been very respectful, very traditional, very polite. We're very proud of Brayden. Love him very
0: much. Man.
2: And he's got some moves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yep. (laughs) Uh, well, okay. He gave the answer that, you know, we can't. Yeah. And I can think of something clever. <laughs> you could think of something clever. My
2: For... second question is the same as my first question. Oh. But Gandalf versus Dumbledore.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah.
2: Okay. I mean. And it, remember, this is a fighting match.
1: A fighting match. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, Gandalf, obviously. I mean, Tolkien okay. wrote him in such fashion that he was yeah. not only a intelligent wizard skilled in the mystic arts, but was no slouch with a sword or staff when need oh, right. arose. Well, that's, that's I'm not sure really I see cool. a lot. See Dumbledore just grabs his Phoenix and disappears, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I've seen him in fisticuffs, but we have no, seen Gandalf yeah. in action with sword. Right. And I mean, that shadow facts, that horse that he rides. Uh, I mean, yeah. to tame a horse like that, you gotta be a manly <laughs> wizard. Yeah.
2: Fair enough. I can see that. I, I personally, I'm a, uh, I grew up with the Harry Potter, mm. and so I feel like the wizardry in Dum- like that Dumbledore has is more malleable. Like he can, I don't know, I feel like he can do more with his wand than perhaps Gandalf could, but it's, it's just because I haven't seen Gandalf in everything that he, I feel like I haven't seen Gandalf's full potential. Did you read Lord of the Rings?
0: No.
1: Uh-uh. I mean, wow. have you seen him you face off with the Balrog on the bridge? You yeah. shall not pass. Yeah. Hello, yeah. <laughs>
2: That's pretty good.
1: And then they fought their way down the abyss, and he smote his ruin upon the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Gandalf, hundred percent, all the way,
2: yeah. no doubt. Yeah, I would agree. I didn't prepare. I didn't prepare to defeat. It's optional. No... That part's no. off. So That's clear, clear. Yeah. clear Jack. Gandalf six two, and Dumbledore <laughs> only six one. No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, so, okay, so last question. Oh, dear. There's more? All right. What is something that you have discovered that is unique to Texas since you've been living there that you wish was everywhere? Something unique to Texas that I wish was everywhere. Or at least something that you had never seen before or experienced before until you moved to Texas.
1: I mean, it's Texas. It's not like it's the moon or some rare place that's unlike i mean it's it's, it's a, a state stacked. and they have roads and trees. you know <laughs> i mean road. it's <laughs> and trees i'm I not a, every state i guess i guess they don't have <laughs> as many trees they have they have clouds from time to time <laughs> i mean there's pe- people are people You have. i don't know what you want me to say kolaches <laughs> Kalachis. i don't know it looks uh, like oh my goodness see i'm telling you It's 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 not as much everywhere as you think. Kalachis are great. Yeah, kalachis are a fun part of living in Texas. They are uh, a delicious um, uh, bread with the on the inside. You can get sausage or cheese, jalapenos. Then there's also kind of the dessert kalachis that have the cream cheese or the strawberry filling. Okay. Uh, We have the Kalachi Kitchen. We have King Kalachi. We have Slavaceks. Kalachi Emporium. That, I mean, what is our what? It's like a check. Yeah, it, it goes it, back.
2: To, it's a check, original one. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. I mean, I'm assuming Texas everything's Tex Mex, but that's not Tex Mex. No, right. definitely not.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, like sopapillas. You know, at the Tex Mex, you have if you, when you go to a good Mexican restaurant, you know, you can get dessert a sopapilla yeah. and get honey on it, and that's good. Oh, you know, sopapillas, so, don't you? No,
2: you never had sopapillas. Okay, so uh, yeah. the only I think you can get sopapilla here. I've had. I've had. Fried ice cream. Sure. That's it. Sure. <laughs> and the, the little twisty things from Taco Bell.
1: Okay. Here we go. You know, I really think everybody should have a cowboy hat. I mean, Texas, <laughs> the cowboy hats is a thing. We need to take that more global. Don't, I've Don't, got one. And so good for you. We could, yeah. you need to get that trend going all, right. all over the place. So something I wish that Texas has that everywhere else should. The hat, the belt buckles, the boots. Come on. It's all or
0: nothing.
2: Being fat no. (laughs) Let's do this. Why didn't you wear your cowboy hat today?
0: That's right. All right. So let's get into the less nonsensical side of of the podcast. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) So today we are are asking a question that I, I imagine some of you who decided to turn this episode on if you saw the title, you may have thought, I don't even know what that means. Uh, the question is, am I an Armenian? And uh, Jackson, when 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 we were first talking about different types of episodes, I remember writing this down.
2: Did you know what that was when I wrote it down back then? I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm American. I'm <laughs> it's definitely right. not from Armenia. Okay. So. <laughs> 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 uh, like yeah, it's yeah. definitely it's definitely a term that I've heard
1: okay yeah in all honesty <laughs> we do need to dis- distinguish between armenians and armenian right armenia is a country <laughs> that is true right, <laughs> with quite a history that, we're talking about armenianism which is a a,
0: a theological uh right system right. based upon jacob arminius yeah, yeah. The, right okay so so let's start there that Let, let's let's start there paul like uh, I think the history behind the discussion is something that we have to to at least spend a little time on. And uh, I wanted to especially talk about this, knowing that Paul is going to be on here uh, this week and and be able to record with us. I wanted to pick something that I knew the that he would get excited about with the history and and all of this, and have plenty to talk about. So I'm just going to let you go, Paul. Like what? Tell us about Jacob Arminius and uh, this the, the the, the theology that is built out of his teaching and and such from the 16th century, right?
1: Yeah, and I do like history, and I think it's important for us to reflect upon history. You know, sometimes there's a stigma against history that, oh, you know, history is boring. Oh, right. But, you know, I think Christians, all Christians, really should uh, study the past. We stand upon the shoulders that have gone before us and A history of movements and individuals of great theological influence who have been trendsetters for uh, themes related to Christianity in the past uh, helps us to uh, frame more properly our understanding of what we believe and why. So for a long time in the Middle Ages, Catholicism, they were kind of the the only uh, folks in town. They had a monopoly on (laughs) religion in Europe. Yes. We have that going out of control with a lot of excesses, and then you have the Reformation. Martin Luther, who rose up, right, who gave a protest. You know, Protestant, the, the idea there is a protest against the excesses of Catholicism. And so he launched the uh, Protestant Reformation movement, and the Reformers wanted to reform Catholicism. They said, we need to fix this. So they never really started off as saying we need to go over from scratch, or they said we need to reform on Catholicism. And so you have folks like uh, Martin Luther, and then later you have John Calvin. John John Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564, and he was just so influential Mm -hmm. because of his writing and his preaching and his teaching, and he really defined the distinctive Protestant concept of of forensic justification where and, and you know there there's no aspect of life in society at the time that went untouched by Calvin his his influence was just so profound wow but we can and, and not just worship and not just the church but society right. at large the impact impact of Calvin and his imprint are just all over the the thought world the worldview of the day so it gained wider influence but Calvin and Calvinism, Calvin's name is permanently linked with the theological system of beliefs about salvation known as Calvinism. Right. And at its core, Calvin theology, Calvin's theology asserts that humans can do nothing to contribute toward their salvation. And it's up to God's sovereignty alone regarding who he elects for salvation. And the system is famously illustrated with the acronym TULIP, T L I P, where each word stands for a component to Calvinistic theology. T is total depravity or total inability, Mm -hmm. Um, unconditional election, limited atonement, or particular redemption, irresistible grace, or the efficacious call of the Spirit, as it's also known. And then P is perseverance of the saints. And... You know, on the surface, I think it's really important to note that this does indeed appear to be an overreaction to the works-based model of salvation, so prevalent in Catholicism. Sure. That pendulum swings. Sure. So they're coming out of Catholicism and responding against that. Right. And I think it's it, it go. You know, if you're on the road and you. Drift a little toward the ditch on the right, you might overcorrect and swerve into the ditch on the left. So Calvinism, I believe, is an overreaction or overcorrection to Catholicism from one extreme to the other. So the pendulum, when it swings away from its apex on one end, will swing and it won't stop at the center, but carry out in the opposite direction. So in other words, Calvinism may well be a disproportionate overreaction with its overemphasis on God's sovereign election to the Catholic teaching of kind of saving meritocracy. Right. Okay, so then you have, in, in contrast to Calvin's model, Jacob Arminius, who lived from 1559 to 1609. He was a Dutch remonstrant, part of the Dutch remonstrant movement, responding to, in this situation, not Catholicism, but Calvinism. Right. And he argued for a different understanding about how God saves people. Arminius served from 1603 as professor in theology at the University of Leiden. So there's our Netherlands or Dutch yes. reference. Thanks, yes. Jackson. Good job. Go and, <laughs> and kind of like Calvin, he was a very prolific writer. So again, at the time, those that had gained a lot of influence were the ones who were writing a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, a, like Calvin, a very prolific writer writer sold books and pamphlets and gathered a large following and so arminius jacob arminius really took issue with every aspect of that tulip of calvinism right and on each point and we can work through each of those points if you want to
0: you know <laughs> i don't know how much time we have for that <laughs> he
1: gave he gave a counterbalancing notion right and i mean we can shoot through them real fast if sure, you sure. want because you know the t for total depravity from an from Arminian perspective or from the perspective of Jacob Arminius, he would affirm free will or human ability. Right. That we can respond in faith. Instead of the Holy Spirit planting in your heart faith, and only then are you activated and your depravity is overcome by a miraculous event of the Spirit's working in your life. Arminius said, no, we we have the capacity to respond in faith to the invitation that were offered of God's grace, right? The choice, the choice, free will. Yeah. So the debate over free will, right? Uh, number two for Calvinism is that you that uh, unconditional election. In response to that, Arminianism is conditional election. That it's con- your salvation is conditioned upon your response and of faith, submissive, right. obedient
0: faith or not. Still very similar to the the discussion over free will.
1: Yes. And a lot of the, these are all woven yes. together. There's right. not like there's any one that's in isolation right. to the rest. Three, in the tulip model, limited atonement uh, from the Arminian perspective, universal redemption or general atonement that Christ died and his death was efficacious or effective for all people, anyone, everywhere right. are eligible to respond to his atoning work at the cross, his substitutionary atonement. Right. Uh, then number four, rather than irresistible grace arminianism says the holy spirit can be effectually resisted you know we can reject uh, again tied to free will and then finally the perseverance of the saints arminianism says that we can fall from grace we can so sin so as to be eternally lost if we do not abide in christ okay. so they're very different models and you know even as time has time passed different religious bodies. You think of, like, Methodism, the, the Wesleyans. The Wesleyan tradition is going to be more Arminian tradition. Okay. But you think of Baptists, many Baptists are going to be pretty firmly rooted in Calvinism, along with Presbyterians as well. Right. So over the years, it's been two different models of salvation that, depending upon your theological heritage or understanding of these ideas, will put you in one camp, or another.
0: Okay, so uh, so that's kind of our the basic breakdown of what Arminianism is. And, yep, based and, upon the theological teaching of Jacob
1: Arminius, right? In, yep, the seventeenth century.
0: So I want us to talk a little bit then about some of the key differences, like what what is. Really going to determine which direction a person goes between these two options, uh, you know, and and to me, certain ones stand out as really very clear divide between the two. Uh, and and the the first one is the the whole election process. You know, how uh, has has God predetermined every specific individual that is going to be saved and therefore every individual that will not be saved or do we have a role to play in that process do i have a choice do i am am i the one electing to be saved to to accept the grace that is offered through the blood of jesus what what are your thoughts on on some of that paul
1: yeah i think that's uh, an important way to go at it and a very important way to think about it. Yeah, when we think about election and we think about God's electing of who will be saved or who will be condemned, we first want to affirm that God knows and God has divine foreknowledge. One of the aspects of God's nature is foreknowledge. Now, from the Calvinist perspective, from the Reformed, and by the way, Often the word reformed is conflated with the word Calvinist. Yes. And often those are interchangeable. Right. So from the reformed or from the Calvinistic um, perspective position, election, foreknowledge, means for ordination, that God knows, therefore He ordains it. Now from the Arminian perspective, foreknowledge does not necessitate foreordination. So God's foreknowledge does not necessitate foreordination. Because just because God knows whether you'll choose to respond to him in faith at some point in your life and become a Christian or not, he He knows the answer to that. Right. But him knowing does not mean that he foreordains it in the sense that he... Is forcing it on you, I guess. Forcing it on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good way to point it. So that's a major point of divide. We would yes. say, I would say that... God's foreknowledge does not necessitate for ordination that we still have choice. We still have free will. God knows the end of a thing from a beginning, but he chooses to allow for our free will capacity to have a role in our response to his grace. And that is difficult. So we're, we're pitting two seemingly contradictory things against themselves. That is the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Right. Calvinists argue that that, that is um, a paradox that cannot be resolved, and they favor sovereignty of God. Okay, okay. But Arminius, he's one that said, well, we have antinomies. and antinomy is the term that is used for two seemingly contradictory things, and yet both must be true. Mm. Another classic example is the nature of Christ. How is he 100% God? How is he fully God and fully man? Can he right. be 100% God and 100% man? Well, that's bad math, right. but it's good theology, <laughs> right? So right. he is. We affirm and say, so, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, we affirm. We let it stand. How do you resolve an antinomy? You let it stand. So we affirm the sovereignty of God, but Certainly. we affirm the free will of man, of humanity. And can we have a nice, tidy little reconciliation of those two things in our mind? Well, no, there's mystery that kicks in. And and we acknowledge that we are limited in our ability to fully fathom how. Sure. They are. And so we respond in faith. We trust that God is sovereign, but He has given us the capacity and the gift of free will to choose. He, does, right. he doesn't create us as robots, automatons, pre-programmed or not, to respond to Him. We right. have a choice in the in the matter.
0: Right, and I think that is is one of the hardest things for me to to wrap my mind around as far as wh- how do you come to the conclusion that God has predetermined all of this, um, when it, it's seems so clear that we are given choice, you know, you exam, even biblical examples after example, after example, the, the people of Israel had, they made the wrong choice so often. And the, and, the, you know, choice is just a part of who we are. And, and, you know, and I would say the same about the, the love of God and the, that we are to respond to, uh, re- responding to that because we're being forced to is not genuine uh, in any way.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And just a, a plain, clear reading of Scripture, I think, bears out what you're saying. Come to me, Jesus says, all you that labor and heavy related, whoever knocks, I will open. So the idea that we have a required response, God doesn't force it on us. He invites us. And we have the choice to either respond rightly to that invitation of his grace and salvation through his son Christ, or to reject it and to walk away. Even in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That was Jesus preached the message. And then even at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he gave that great example. That's right. Are you going to build your house on the rock or the sand? You know, you choose you the, the invitation choose. at the even mm-hmm. at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is right. what kind of follower of will you be? Will you one who be one who believes? or one who mocks. Right. Know. So, right. and in that case you're not a follower of Jesus. You're if you respond with mockery and rejection to Christ, he will he will let you make that choice certainly.
0: And and I think that in in the same vein, uh, 1 Timothy 2 is is an important passage for us in uh, starting with verse 3 where it says this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I think that that seems counter to the idea that God has already decided who is going to do what. Uh, the idea that God has already determined that some people he is going to save and some people he is not. What if he desires for all to be saved? Then why doesn't he do that? I mean, that would seem capricious <laughs> for him to make such a choice.
1: Yeah, and and those that are rooted in the Calvinist tradition, they don't really like that um, that idea because they say, well, you are trivializing uh, the view of sovereignty that we hold, and and that's not really. We still believe in evangelism. We still believe in sharing the gospel. You're saying that we don't. But when push comes to shove, and you drill down, it. I mean. That really is the issue, right? Um, where does the motivation for evangelism, for example, come mm-hmm. from if for sure. we don't have a say, if we don't have a choice? Mm-hmm. So many of my Calvinist friends, they don't like when I bring that up and I try to do it very respectfully, Yes, and, sure. and, but you can't dismiss that point. I mean, that's a core right. part of the Calvinistic theology, which again, I would like to say that very obviously seems to be an overreaction to
0: the workspace salvation of Catholicism. Right. Um and, and Which is also not what we're promoting. Right. <laughs> you know, we're not right. saying that that you are we are in any way earning our way into God's yeah. favor. And you know, the truth often lies between
1: two extremes. That's right. And so uh, while while Arminius I guess I usually say it this way, I would typically consider myself more theologically aligned with the presentation of saving theology that Arminius promoted, I still am uncomfortable with the label, well, you're an Arminian, just (laughs) as I'm uncomfortable with a lot of, like, I don't want
2: to be labeled based upon some theologian from the past, you know, I want to wear the name of Christ. That's a conversation we've had in a couple... It's been a few weeks, but it was, uh, am I a liberal or a conservative? Like, <laughs> well, I don't want to be a liberal or conservative. I don't want to be a Calvinist or an Armenian. I want to be a Christian.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know what's interesting, if we can get back on history just for a quick moment, when we think about the history of the Restoration Movement, folks like Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell, you know, those guys, you know, for example, Stone came out of Presbyterianism and Campbell out of, you know, Baptist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which are Calvinistic. But the Restorationists, those Restoration Movement leaders of the, you know, 1800s right. called for faith when, when, when faith—and and then when faith was professed, they immersed those believers in the full assurance that God would forgive their sins as he had promised, and they preached the ability of all hearers to respond to the gospel, the active role of faith and baptism, so they grappled with how do you get in Christ, and it is simply by faith, and it is open to all. And so their convictions about the nature of the gospel and evangelism and revivalism, right. the revival movement, that is what pulled the, That is what pulled them out of Calvinistic theology. The, sure. The, the the nature of the gospel in regards to evangelism. So even in the Stone Campbell movement, those leaders and their understanding of faith and revivalism and the assurance that you find in your obedience to the gospel. They found Calvinism to be too subjective and too feelings-based. Yes. You know, Stone, for example, he waited for a year for the Holy Spirit to to move him. And then when it didn't happen, he said, well, you know, when I read the New Testament, if I want, if I believe in Jesus and I repent of my sins and confess his name and and baptizing him Christ, there's the assurance that right.
0: I'm in Christ. exactly,
1: And that's exactly. faith. You know, the faith response, all that we do to obey God and receive his promises through what he has asked us to do in the gospel, which includes baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Right. That clear understanding of the gospel, I think, is, is antidote to a lot of those overreactions, whether it be Catholicism or Calvinism.
0: Right. Uh, yes, I would agree. I would agree. So you know, I also wrote down you know while you were uh, talking about the going through the different letters the the in the tulip doctrine of Calvinism uh, the the atonement the idea that uh, Christ died for a select group that elect group versus Christ dying for all some passages come to mind that seem to indicate pretty clearly that Christ died for all. And not least of which John 3, 16, uh, you know. With the, right, <laughs> yeah, right. There's John 3, 16. There's uh, what it is, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. One In the verse right before it, uh, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all i mean i just um i really struggle with the idea that that uh jesus would would come and die um for a predetermined few right yes the extent of the atonement we would
1: affirm a universal atonement right that christ died for all and all are eligible all are invited to respond to His atoning sacrifice in His death, burial, and resurrection, right to receive the promised salvation. Yes, I think we have a preponderance of scripture that emphasizes that. And you have to do kind. And again, I don't want to caricature, but you know, when I have these conversations with some of my Calvinist friends, you know, that you often have to do, they will have an explanation for some of these passages. But you have to do what I call. Um, linguistic acrobatics to make right. the text say something that it's not clearly already saying. I mean, the right. text is clear on these sorts of things, I believe. And so it becomes, yes. you know, how do we read the Bible? Are we reading it from a, the standpoint first of our theological bias or perspective? Or are we trying to come to the text and let the text speak for itself? Exactly. And draw out truths from it and not force our ideas upon it with presuppositions.
0: Okay. So, uh, yeah, with with that in mind, uh, I, I have a question for you. So one of the other issues that that is very common in discussing um, Calvinistic doctrine versus Arminianism or non-Calvin uh, d- doctrine uh, is the perseverance of the saints and the challenges that that are intertwined with with that theology and the idea that uh, after receiving salvation, can it ever go away? Uh, can it ever be? lost right Mm -hmm. and um passage that, that that came to mind for me was was this one that's in john chapter 10 uh where jesus says starting in verse 27 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me i give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand so what is is this verse is used for is to say see you can't ever lose that salvation Right. I usually
1: say no one can, no one or nothing can snatch you from the hand, but you can choose to leave. You can jump out of that hand on your own, yeah, right? You, you can pry yourself <laughs> from the grip of Christ <laughs> right. and yeah. and leap to your own destruction if you so choose. Of course, I always like to, you know, the passage, we have many passages which are warning passages against apostasy. The word apostasy or falling away from grace. Absolutely. And again, Calvinists would say the impossibility of apostasy. Uh, The other perspective, and we're to happen to be talking about Arminianism here, you know, the possibility of apostasy. And we've got a whole collection of passages, for example, in the book of Hebrews, those warning passages. But I think probably my favorite, well, favorite, I don't know (laughs) if that's the right word. But second Peter, chapter two, verse 22, when uh, we have reference to the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. So I think this and Peter is talking about when you've become a Christian but you choose to revert back to the ways of the world and your old sins, it's like a dog going back and licking up its vomit. The gross, right. grotesque right. image of that is meant to be especially, why would anyone abandon their Christianity? Why would you abandon your faith? Right. Like the pig, once you've cleaned it, it goes brought back to the mud. You know, don't do that.
0: Abide in Christ. And that's what, I mean, in the verses right before that, what Peter is saying is that uh, it, you were in, he essentially says, you were in better shape before you came to Christ uh, than you are now having turned your back on Christ and having gone back to uh, this life of, of sin, this life that is uh, an ungodly lifestyle. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's, those are important verses right there at the end of second Peter chapter. Yeah,
1: it's very much so. And again, just to reference the Hebrews passage again, you know, you think of places like Hebrews chapter 10, for example, you know, starting, I believe in verse 19 or so, uh, about the the full assurance of faith. We are to draw near with a true heart, hold fast. Verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful let us consider how to stir up one another.
0: Mm. That kind of language doesn't really sound like it is something that is permanent and unbreakable. Right.
1: Right. And it goes
0: on in verse
1: 29, you know, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and mm. has outraged the spirit of grace? Right. Uh, And the whole book of Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, the whole book of Hebrews is, you know, a sermon encouraging Christians not to revert back to Judaism. You know, you have, why would you, Christ is better, why would you go back to Moses? You know, the promises are better, why revert back? You know, stay true to your commitment of faith in Christ and don't go back, don't revert back to a condition that is worse. Probably in Hebrews, you know, I know I mentioned that chapter 10. Chapter in my six also. in my preaching so. Bible, I have all this marked up, and so I have my little unmarked <laughs> edition, so I can't find my classic passage. That Chapter
0: 6 is the one that says it is impossible for those who, once having been enlightened, there it is. have tasted the heavenly gifts, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. All those are clear descriptions of people who are saved. Sounds like someone who is a Christian. Yeah, sounds like a Christian. And then verse 6 says, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, uh, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. Now, we could talk about what all of that means, but clearly it is in the, the Hebrews writer's mind, it is clearly possible for someone to be in a saved condition and then to fall away. Yes. Yes. And that's not a pleasant
1: thing to ponder. I mean, we. Not. If we were voting, I mean, I would probably vote for perseverance. Of the yes, saints. please. <laughs> uh, no, we're not. That's not how that works. You know, we submit to the text of scripture. That's one of our guiding convictions is we go where the text takes us and we develop our theology, not upon theologians of the past or movements of a certain denomination, but we develop our theology in response to a careful reading of the text. And that's rooted in our understanding of the nature of Scripture itself, that it is of divine origin that God has writ- has given us a word. There is a, a word from the Lord. Uh, God wrote a book, and right. the book is invested with divine authority, and therefore we are subject to it. We don't have the right to read our theology into it and do those exegetical acrobatics to make it say what we want it to say based upon our favorite, you know, Reformationist <laughs> theologian, yes. no disrespect. We're grateful for the work that so many did in sacrificing themselves to try to move in the right direction. And so the efforts of the reformists, they were trying to, like Calvin, were trying to reform the broken system of of Catholicism. But in reality, you can't fix something so thoroughly broken. Ingrained. So the right thing to do is to just go back to the origin, start from scratch. And so then you have the restoration movement. So I think the restorationist idea or the idea of restoration, back to the source, back to the sources, back to Scripture, and all those great restoration slogans that emerged (laughs) from that, where the Bible speaks, we speak, where the Bible is silent, (laughs) we are silent. Doing (laughs) Bible things in Bible ways, using Bible names, you know, those kinds of slogans developed, not that we limit our theology to slogans, but (laughs) those slogans developed out of this conviction of restoring to bring something back to its original condition. And you've probably heard the illustration of the fella that had his glass, he was really thirsty, and he went to the river and scooped it up. But, you know, he looked at it, there's some floaties in there, and it's kind of dark, (laughs) and it's polluted, and he has to make a decision, right? Right. He's thirsty. Is he going to drink that? But he decides he will not drink that polluted water. He refuses. He pours it out, and so he undertakes the arduous journey to travel upstream. And as he travels, he has to bypass the factories that are pouring pollutants into the river, and he comes to the mountain, the base of the mountain, and he looks up, and it's hard work, and he's tired, and he's still very thirsty, but he's determined. And so he climbs the mountain, and eventually he comes to the source, the spring the origin of the river itself. And he has his glass and he dips it in there and he holds it up and it's clear and it's clean and he drinks it and his thirst is satisfied. So the idea of restorationist or restorationism is we refuse to drink the polluted religious water that has come to us through time and history. You know, the religious systems of the past are like those factories that have poured pollutants, theological pollutants. We bypass all that, and we go to the source. So we circumvent those, and we go back to the Bible, back to the source. That's restorationism. That's the restoration movement, please, back to the Bible. And that is our source for pure theology. That's our source for living water that we drink, and it satisfies us spiritually. So I think we always need to keep our notion of restoration sharp. We always need to keep our conviction held dearly to us that the Bible is our sole source of authority in all matters of faith and practice, and we are subject to it because it is what God has given us to guard us in our theology and to guide us in our understanding of his will through the vehicle of his word.
0: Very well said.
1: So let's not let a, a theologian, let's not let a theologian, whether it's Calvin or Arminius, that again, I'll go back to this idea of you know, am I Arminian? Well, you know, I'm I'm a little uncomfortable saying, <laughs> yeah, while my theology would more closely align with him in contrast to Calvin, I am very uncomfortable with putting onto myself a mantle of any person, any theologian of the past, right. their name, right. you know, let's go back to the Bible, let's go back to
0: that source and try to be Christians and Christians only, because because any... Theologian or ideology that comes from a man is going to very naturally have some of those pollutants in it because no man is going to be perfect in their understanding of God, uh, whereas God's revealed will and revealed word about himself is. Yes. We always want to be humble about
1: this. We're not saying here in this podcast that we have all the answers and our theology is perfect. (laughs) You know, uh, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You know, we're just <laughs> trying to do like the best that. we can to understand rightly what Scripture says about important matters of faith and salvation. Right. And so even this discussion is not a trivial discussion because what we must do to be saved is a top-tier issue. I know some sure. might say, well, what's all this fuss about Calvinism, Arminianism? You know, what's the difference? It's no big deal. Just pick your flavor and it's fine. <laughs> well, the <laughs> the problem with that attitude is the stakes are just so high. This deals right. with salvation, which is a yes. top-tier issue. This is not yes. a tertiary matter of faith or doctrine. This is a paramount to our standing before God, our salvation. And so we want to do the best we can to get that right. We may get lots of other things wrong, but let's
0: make sure we get this right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and uh, I think you have answered the last question that I had written down here for us, you know, on... Uh, whether or not we are Arminian or you are Arminian, and uh, the idea is that we may agree more with what Jacob Arminius uh, taught and wrote uh, compared to John Calvin, but tying ourselves to one uh, human individual is uh, problematic, at at least. (laughs) Yes, Uh, I think
2: that's true. Thank you.
0: So, uh, Jackson, do you have anything else that you would like to add to this conversation today?
2: I'm still American. You're still American? <laughs> I, I, I love having these episodes because I get to sit here and learn. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Me too. Me too. Well, we want to thank everyone so much for listening today. We appreciate those of you who have tuned in and uh, who have listened to primarily to Paul Meredith. And we really appreciate Paul Meredith and his knowledge and his ability to share Uh, on fairly short notice, quite a bit with us. Uh, We really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Paul, for for being here today.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. These are fun. I enjoy this and uh, would be happy to come back any time in the future and pontificate with you about yeah. deep matters of faith or not so deep matters about right. Texas and George Washington and Abe Lincoln. So I just never know what's going to happen when I step in here with you guys. Exactly. But which is great. It's always fun. And thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And we hope Uh, And we pray that these episodes continue to be a blessing to all of you listeners out there. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and are continuing to grow in your identity as a follower of Jesus. Take care.